0: I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Levin. I'm a grief therapist and the founder of From Grief to Growth, the host of the podcast Untethered, Healing the Pain from a Sudden Death, and I'm the creator and author of the Growing After Traumatic Loss course. I provide support, guidance, and teachings to help you with the aftermath of chaos, trauma, and grief. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Untethered, healing the pain from a sudden death. I'm Dr. Jennifer Levin, and I specialize in traumatic death and helping individuals through the struggles, pain, trauma, and chaos of an unexpected death. Today's podcast interview is the first of a two-part interview with Kim Canton, author of the brand new book, Where Yellow Flowers Bloom?, A True Story of Hope Through Unimaginable Loss, which was just released last Friday, April 9th. Kim's book describes the tragic story of what happened to her family during the mudslides in Montecito, California in 2018 after the Thomas fires. In the early morning of January 10th, Kim, her husband, Her son and her daughter were in the midst of trying to evacuate their home when the water rushed in and tore her family apart. In today's interview, Kim shares her grief experiences after the death of her husband Dave and her son Jack from the devastating mudslides and the way she was able to cope with her traumatic grief. Welcome. Can you start off today and tell me um, a little bit about yourself and what happened to your family during the mudslides that occurred in Montecito, California in January of 2018? Sure. And hi, Jennifer. Thank you for
1: having me. Um, so a little bit about me is I'm 57, um, have two kids, um, a boy and a girl, and um, loving husband. Um, and now. Um, one of my children is up in heaven with my husband, and I'm a, I have a new identity as a widow. Um, and um, my daughter survived, so Lauren lives with me. Um, it was um, January 8th, and there were heavy rains forecasted that night. And we had had multiple evacuations with the uh, Thomas fire that had happened the month prior and so we were very alert to watching our um, aware and beware messages on our phone and watching the news. And um, we weren't in any mandatory evacuation zone. But regardless, I, I'm i a nervous nilly. So I went and got a um, hotel room booked. And I told my husband, hey, if, if it gets heavy rain, we'll have the car staged out front. We had sandbags up and we'll go to the hotel with the dog. And um, so that was the plan. And... We went to sleep and at about 3.30 in the morning, my husband and I both woke up to pounding rain. And so we, we got up right away and Dave went to check on uh, different areas of the house. And we told the kids, get up, get dressed, we're leaving. Um, but sadly, what happened was, and we didn't know what was happening, is a part of the mountain um, gave away with the heavy rains and the um, landscape that had no foliage on it from the Thomas fire. And so um, it came crashing down into the village. and um, across the lane from us was the creek. And there was a couple houses there, but it didn't make the corner of the creek. and a 30 foot wave um, plumed up to the sky with boulders and downed massive trees, and it crashed down and obliterated my family home with my family in it. And um, I washed away about two football fields away. Um, and was found in an intersection in a debris pile injured. My daughter was um, washed away about 100 yards from the home and buried alive under 20 feet of mud, a car, electrical transformer, a refrigerator, part of a roof um, until her miraculous rescue that was shown um, around the world because it was pretty amazing. They found her and she was able to walk from that. And most tragically is um my husband, my 49 year old husband, um was killed and he was found at the surf line at Hammond's Beach that morning. And my 17 year old son also perished. Um and he was one of two of the 23 victims of the mudslide that weren't found. They were officially as missing. Um, And so it really was the night of the unimaginable.
0: And how long was it before your son was found?
1: Well, it was probably around three years, um, little three, three and a half years. And we found some of his remains, not all of his remains. um, But enough, I think, that helps me kind of um, feel a little closure with that. Um, and getting him buried.
0: So a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As I mentioned in my introduction, um, I had a cop uh, chance to to read your book. And, and now that I hear you talk about it and the impact and the amount of loss that you and your daughter have experienced all at once is, is just overwhelming. It's heartbreaking. And um, after the mudslides, you and your daughter, you were both severely injured. You learned that your husband had died. Lauren's father had died. Your home had been swept away. All of your possessions were gone. Your son was missing, presumably dead. Can you describe what was your grief like early on after those mudslides occurred?
1: Um, early on, I, I think it was shock and disbelief. I was transported into a hospital. Um, it was shock and disbelief and, um, and they sedated me, right? I was in a lot of pain, I had painkillers because I was so injured. So, um, I, I had, there was just so much going on, um, because I had, they told me I had no home. I had no personal belongings other than, you know, my wedding rings, my earrings and my watch. Um, I, um, I had no identification. I had no ID, everything washed away. Um, I had no Dave and I had no Jack. So, but I had a lot of people coming in, right. People were, I was going into surgery. People were tending to me. So, the early stages of grief, I think, were were, were really just complicated um, because I was so injured and so hurt. I couldn't even like roll, roll over. They had to roll me over. Um, yet, you know, they told me about Dave that next morning and I just wailed, you know, and then I had to take a deep breath and say, I've got to tell Lauren and uh, be strong for her. So there was, it was, it was, I, I wanna say the early stages were uh, complicated. I was in shock, I was in disbelief and I had to mobilize mentally immediately for my daughter. So that she felt she had a safety in her mother that I was still her mother and I was gonna help her through this. So I really felt that. Uh, so I, I hope that answers your question. That's kind of what I remember of the first part of my, my grief.
0: Yeah. Was it easier having her to focus on? Yeah. Yeah.
1: I think, um, she gave, I mean, look, it it happened a different way and I was the only one left. I might still be in the fetal position. Um, but I had a job to do and I really kind of framed it for myself of, um, Dave's got Jack, and I've got Lauren, and we're still a family. We're a virtual family, but we're a team. We've always been a team, and I'm going to take care of Lauren, and he, and I know he's taking care of Jack, and so that helped me, um, just how I framed it in my head. Um. And I and I think even the search for Jack, um. Gave me a purpose that. Although it was really brutal, right? To have to go out for three years searching. I had a purpose. I had to take care of Lauren. I had to go find Jack. And I think in a way it was life-saving for me.
0: Yeah. I know also early on, there was a lot of publicity about the mm-hmm. bike dies. Mm-hmm. And I believe even there was a picture of your daughter's recovery on um, the cover story of a national Mm -hmm. magazine, which you even mentioned. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've worked with clients, many clients who've also had the story of their loved one's death displayed for the world to see. How did this type of publicity impact your grief experience? Yeah,
1: I think it compartmentalized it. Um, I had to... I mean, it was stunning. Um, my girlfriend Sue, she took because the freeway was closed. They took a train. They finally got a train in, and I they were, I was told in the hospital, don't don't watch any of the news because it was all being covered. And um, she leaned over as uh, she came into the hospital room uh, at my bed, and she said, "Oh my God, Lauren's all over the media," and I had no idea. I had no idea the magnitude. Uh, but then I quickly learned because. Um, someone, po- someone tried to sneak into Lauren's hospital. She's in a different hospital than I, saying that she was Lauren's cousin. And he just wanted the story. And so as soon as we knew that, um, we locked down the hospital with um, special codes. So you had to have a special code to get in to see us so that we could really control. I mean, there was media that was sending my mother-in-law flowers. Um, they were calling her trying to get a story. Um, you know, it was just, everyone wanted the story of the miracle mud princess that they had seen come out of her entombment. And, um, I knew I had to protect her from that. Um, and luckily one of our family friends is a a pretty prominent entertainment attorney. And so I didn't know what I needed in the hospital, but I called Doug and I said, Doug, I don't have any idea what I need, but what do I need? And he says, the first thing you need is me to help you block and tackle with the media. I won't, of course, I won't charge you a dime and just send anything to me and I'll handle them. And so that was just really a relief. So we had the lockdown at the hospital. We had um, you know, our, our family friend helping me with anything media related um, because I wanted to protect Lauren. I wanted to, this was, this was a very solemn time And, um, I needed her experience protected and knew that she's not going to give her story until she's ready in on her time. So I really, I think I shifted my grief shifted, maybe it got delayed more, Mm -hmm. um, probably got delayed more because I had to mobilize to protect her and protect this media stuff. Um, so I think that's what happened with it.
0: Delayed in. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. When did the reality of everything you truly lost settle in for you?
1: Well, I was in the hospital, so that was kind of like transported into a different reality. But when there was a couple, two things that come to mind is um, someone had helped get us a rental, a furnished rental home. After the mudslide, and that was no easy feat because 400 homes were destroyed and everyone needed a place and I needed a furnished place, right? I had nothing. So I got out of the rehab hospital and my parents were driving me to the, the first rental. And, um, one of my girlfriends got me a little carry on luggage bag and in it were a pair of sweats, a sweater and a hairbrush, and maybe a couple pairs of underwear. And that's all I had. And um, we got to the top. Lauren was already in the house. And I walked into a place that they said was where I was going to stay, my kind of home. And my family of four wasn't in it. It was just Lauren. And nothing looked familiar. And it wasn't where I would have ever chosen to live. And I had nothing. Um, And I'm like, oh, my God. And then um, what really got me was when I went to bed the first night I was in the master bedroom. and Because I'd been in hospital beds, right? And I'm like, I don't think I'm going to like being in this master bedroom and getting into bed and my husband not being there. And so I purposely chose to sleep on the side of the bed that would have been his side than my side because I didn't want the view that I was so used to of looking over and seeing him there. So I did that little mental trick to myself but um that's when i think i really realized what what was going on
0: yeah and i imagine it kept happening in stages
1: yeah 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 i mean going to look for the you know the cemetery plots you know and the roads are still closed down and then i really got to see like they we had to have an escort police escort um, take us to the cemetery because those roads were closed, but they knew I needed to get in there to look at a plot. And my dad had gotten there earlier. Him, he and my mom had gone and kind of pre-screened what would be good couple choices, and I was going to make the final choice. And so we had the police escort, and I saw just the roads were still covered in mud. There was these big trucks hauling away, truckloads and truckloads of mud and debris. And I got a sense then of like, this was massive. It was, I mean, the freeway was closed for 10 days.
0: Yeah. So one of the hallmarks of living with an aftermath, or I should say living in the aftermath of a sudden and unexpected death is the surrounding uncertainty and unanswered questions that loved ones such as yourself have to endure during the grieving process. Mm -hmm. And your situation definitely illustrates this. In your book, you talk so much about all of the unknowns and the uncertainty that you struggled with. Mm -hmm. You were constantly trying to learn more about what happened to your husband, Dave. Yeah. We were in the relentless search for clues related to where Jack's remains were. And there were so many unknowns about what was going to happen to your future. Yeah. Lauren, your daughter was going to cope with the day-to-day struggles that were being thrown your way. Yeah. How did you exist with all of these feelings of uncertainty and unknowns that you were just constantly dealing with? Mm-hmm. Um, I
1: think I went more methodical. Like I'm more of a highly organized, high, you know, people would say a highly buttoned up person. And I was just filleted open. I was just I couldn't move, couldn't walk, had nothing. Uh, the thing that I think I did is I went methodical and just tried to like, okay, what needs to happen next? Kind of went, tried to stay in the executive function. Um, and what really made the difference were people, um, people made the difference for me. I had, um, people that, you know, I had my girlfriend from kindergarten come, she's known me forever. I said, I need you to come. And there's a comfort there when you've known someone that long. My girlfriend from when I was 16, I go, Stacy, you need to come. And, um, so they, so Lisa took a week Stacy took a week, <clears throat> my sister came from Europe, took a week. So I had people and then, um, so I had core people and there were some really wonderful ladies in town that just were amazing. They went to stores and they said like a Chica's does Kim shop here, look her up and let's buy everything she bought last year again, just, you know, cause they didn't know what to get me or whatever. And so where they would take clothes out of their own closet and bring them to me. Um, so that I'd have some stuff. And so there was this massive oh, kind of, um, nurturing from this community and by friends. And I have a really nice friend network here. Um, and my friends that I've, you know, had in my life and then new people showed up or re-entered my life. Like Lisa, who was, she re-entered my life again. Right. Cause I, I'm like, I need this right now. And I was there when her mother died of breast cancer, um, in fourth grade. So, um, what happened was there was people made the difference and I was open and vulnerable and needed people and knew I needed people and new people showed up for me, like the sacred search team, right? Like there was people who I never knew before who, were kind of my angels who re-entered or entered my life. And I'm a pretty good read of people because I was a, a sale in sales, you know, most of my career sales and marketing. So I'm a pretty good read of people. So in my, I listen to my intuition. If someone doesn't feel safe, I listen to that. But these people felt really safe. And so it, I think it's people. People made the difference and compassionate people made the difference.
0: Mm-hmm. So I'm hearing you say that, you were able to tolerate the uncertainty and the unknown with the right people in your life.
1: Yeah. 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 So, I mean, I didn't like it. I mean, yeah. I certainly didn't like it. Cause I'm, I like, I like answers. I like them fast. I like, to, I'm, I'm a directive. I, I like all that stuff. And I got none of that. I was, I was, it was like God's little lesson for me. Like I was getting none of it but I had to learn to trust and trust the process.
0: Yeah. So the questions didn't necessarily get answered, but the people made it bearable.
1: Yeah, they really made it bearable. Their kindness made it bearable.
0: Yeah. I think that's such a an amazing way to look at it because so many people are struggling. How do I get these things unanswered? And it's like, you may not, but find ways to make it tolerable and bearable. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. and
1: it was the people who did that.
0: Okay. Were you able to be present with the grief you had for Dave, your husband, while you were still searching for Jack?
1: Yeah, yes, and yet it was very, um, I had to compartmentalize it. So when Lauren was at school, I could then focus on Dave, right? If I wasn't out on the search, I could go to the cemetery. I went to widow's group and, and widow's group for me gave me this forum where other widows were talking about the loss of their spouse. Right. Whereas, so it helped me focus in on the loss of the spouse. Um, yeah. Even though I found it hard sometimes to be there because they could go in the closet and grab his sweater and wear it and, and smell right. it. And I couldn't. Um, but that was, I did that deliberately of, of carving out time. Um, he certainly didn't get enough time and that's why I think my grief has been extended. Um, cause I was so, I had so much stuff going on. Um, and I tried to look at what could I do to honor him? You know, he was, um, he really loved his high school. He went to in Rhode Island, love, love, loved it. And it was this goofy little prep school, even though he, he was a day student, he wasn't, there wasn't a ton of wealth there and so, but he loved the school and So they really wanted, you know, do something for Dave and wanted some donation. And I just sat with it. And then then I thought, you know, there was a a scout camp nearby that burned down in one of the fires. And that's where 10,000 kids would go each year from Southern California for this outdoor camp. And um, scouts would use it in the summer. Families would use it. And it burned down. And so they needed some funding to help rebuild it. And I said, you know what, I think... What would Dave want? And I said, I think he'd want the scout camp. And so I focused on honoring him with a donation to the scout camp that repaved a road for them. Um, And that felt good. But yeah, I think poor Dave didn't get enough attention. Um, And I and knowing my husband, he was okay with it. He knew it would come because he knew I had a big job to do. I had to stabilize Lauren, job number one. I had to find Jack because his body was decaying. It was time sensitive. And so I knew Dave would give me a pass a bit if I wasn't, um, you know, it, I, it was really hard. Like who do, who do I spend on grief today? You know, Dave this time and then Jack and then the poor dog got nothing, right? And so um, it was just, I would say, complex and complicated and extended.
0: Yeah. Yeah. What type of grief support did you get throughout this entire process?
1: Sure. With grief support, I think that's one of the first things I said to Lauren, when we were in the rental place, I said, honey, we've never been through anything like this and we're going to need a lot of help a lot. And so I said, let's really invest in this this year. And so I searched out what we could do and the community was helpful. And so I did talk therapy. I went to um, the Hospice of Santa Barbara does grief, um, grief uh, therapy. And so Lauren and I each got our individual therapist. So I did that once a week. I, the Cottage Hospital put on a program called How We Heal and it was a group meeting for the survivors. And that I found phenomenal hearing from other people who got what I went through was probably the single most important. Um, and then I did EMDR for trauma. I did the widow's group. I did. So I was like every day I'm having something going on. I did, um, Reiki therapy, um, which I found very helpful for me. I did, um, and this is newer to me was intuitive readings and that was profoundly helpful. My friend had set that up for me um, while I was in the hospital with a renowned, renowned, uh, evolu- uh, a renowned medium, Suzanne Giesman, who used to be a high-ranking person in the Navy. And um, what was so helpful with the readings is um, I got to hear that Dave and Jack were okay and they were in pure joy. And they would say, "We're okay. We're okay. We love you. We're okay. We're here. You just can't see us." And this was all new to me, but that was really helpful because to know to, to to know in my mind, okay, they're I can't see them, but they're in pure joy, and they're just in a uh, maybe a frequency we can't see. Mm-hmm. That was really helpful. So, and then what else did I do? Um, so there's there's a t- oh, and then I did massage. I did massage because it was part of my healing, but. I knew I needed human touch because I wasn't having, I mean, I wasn't, I I didn't go to massage to have that kind of touch, but um, to have human touch is really, I think important on humans are tactile people. And uh, I would go, you know, every other week, maybe for a massage and it just feeling human hands on my body was really good. Mm -hmm. So I did a, I did a variety of things.
0: Yeah. Sounds like the combination was really impactful for you.
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the group one was really, really, really helpful. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. How were you able to attend to both your grief needs and your daughter, Lauren's grief needs at the same time?
1: Hmm. Well, um, I tried just to make them accessible and available. So I said, Lauren, I really want you to try, will you try doing this? And so she committed to, to try doing it. So she did EMDR. She found a teen program at the hospice. She had a therapist as a hospice. Um, so she engaged in that. She couldn't, EMDR didn't work for her right away because she was too numb and in shock. It didn't work, but she tried and she tried enough. And she says, mom, it's just not working. Can we take a break? Then I said, absolutely. And then I dedicated, I wasn't working anymore, right? Like my life had turned upside down. It was unrecognizable. And my job was therapy and to get through this and to stabilize for Lauren. That was my job. Um, and I think that helped her because she saw that I was prioritizing it and mm-hmm. um, and that, that I was finding it helpful. Uh, but I can't, what what I kind of came to learn is all I could do was kind of present it to her. It was her grief journey. I couldn't do it for her. Mm-hmm. And she was 14. And what I learned is when, when someone's younger, her, her brain could developmentally only handle what a, the 14 year old brain could handle. Yeah. And it was going to be different from maybe when she got to the milestone of 20 or when that executive brain is more developed at 25. Right. So I had to be okay with her journey is going to be different from mine. And hers was very different from mine. Um, cause she was buried alive for eight hours and she was fully conscious. So she has a lot of trauma, you yeah. know, that she's trying to, you know, and that, that affects the nervous system. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Sounds like you're able to um, honor and respect the differences in mm-hmm. both grief journeys. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Because yeah. she'd say, "Hey, I'm numb. I'm numb. I'm numb. I can't feel anything." Like, you know, say, say, Dave's birthday was coming up. She said, I feel nothing. I feel nothing, and I had to just, just accept that. That's where mm-hmm. she was, right? Mm-hmm. I, I, there was no shame in it. There mm-hmm. was just, and, and I could, I could be tearing up. But we were just in every grief journey is different for people. I think.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. And then with that high level of trauma involved. Yeah, yeah. In your book, you also spoke about how difficult it was to grieve sometimes when Lauren had friends around, and you talked about the fact that she needed friends around a mm-hmm. lot. Mm-hmm. Can you share more about this.
1: Yeah, that was really difficult because um, she was obviously terrified and. Um, when we got to the rental and we had two, we had a first one and a second one. She always had to have someone stay over with her. She couldn't be alone. And the, luckily the room she had had two twin beds and she didn't, I said, do you want to crawl into bed with me? And she didn't cause she knew I was so injured. She was afraid of hurting me. And so her solution was always having someone sleep over. So it was like, there was a whole like assembly line of who's staying over one night. Sometimes it was even my friends. And, um, and that was that was, it was good. And then we'd always, friends would always come to our house. So maybe a bunch of four or five middle schoolers would come over and they'd be making bracelets or they'd be playing Uno, right? And and so there was always this stuff going on in the house, which I knew was really good for Lauren, but it really made it so I couldn't let my hair down and feel like it was my house to just grieve, to sit in a chair and cry if I wanted. And, um, you know, there's that book called the body keeps the score and there's truth into it because I remember my, um, girlfriend, Fiona was staying over in Lauren's room that night. And, um, I just started having really significant abdominal pains and I was just moaning. And so Fiona, it was probably one in the morning and she she pops, honey, what's going on? And I said, I don't know, but it's really bad. And she couldn't leave Lauren. So I had like one in the morning, took an Uber to the ER and I got in and they said, you've got a stress ulcer and um, you've got to take this medicine. And at that point I said, okay, something's got to shift. I want Lauren supported, right? She needs her friends, but I also need, and I need my house back. And so I talked to Lauren, I said, here's what's going on. Can we limit it to four days a week? You have someone stay over. And, um, we'll figure out, you know, you stay, I want you to learn to see how can you manage here with just me, um, or you stay at a friend's house, right? Because I needed, I needed it. And so that was a good kind of boundary request that made it more palatable. Cause it was just, it was just like, it, it, it wasn't my house, none of my things then all these people and you feel like you kind of have to be a host, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you, and, and, and I, I didn't want to be a host. I wanted, I wanted to sit in my chair and grieve.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to balance, you know, both your needs and her needs and both of them. So important.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. I had a lot of friends, a lot, a lot of friends would take like would drive Lauren places you know my girlfriends would laugh cuz my one girlfriend Doreen walks out in the morning before Fiona comes in to take over and she had a, a eye mask on to block out the the light she goes Fiona you're going to need that Lawrence with the lights on so it's just like they were they were such troopers for me i mean they they were fabulous friends
0: that's amazing that's amazing um the time that this interview comes out your book will just have been released. Mm -hmm. Tell us about that. And when did you decide that you were going to um, write a book about your experience?
1: Yeah, Jennifer, it was um, during COVID, everything was quieter. Everyone was in their homes. There's not as much to do. And so I knew I said, you know, I think I'm going to start writing because I knew I wanted to document what happened for my future family. And if Lauren has kids and I have grandkids before I forgot some of the details. So it kind of started off like that. But then during the search, some such phenomenal things occurred during that search that the people close to me were like, you have to write this down. And then as I started doing that, it became a really reflective process but I really came to get the sense that maybe, maybe this book could help other people going through trauma um, to chart my journey from more of a desperate grief to more of a peaceful adaptation, integration, right? Um, and and that's how it happened. It was COVID. And uh, then it just kind of, it just, it just happened.
0: Yeah. And the book is called?
1: Uh, where Yellow Flowers Bloom. Yeah. yeah, Where Yellow Flowers
0: Bloom. And how long did it take you to write your book?
1: Uh, probably two and a half years. I mean, its I've never done it. I never thought I'd ever write a book. I never thought I had anything to write about. You know, I kind of prided myself in elementary school, never once finishing a book. Um, so it's just kind of funny that that um, I wrote a book. But um, yeah, yeah. So yeah. Um, it's pretty exciting that it's, it's, it's coming out. And I think it, it it's, that's been really a part of my healing process. I've really felt the difference. I really felt the shift now that I've seen it bound and that it's a real book and it's people are real, you know, it's really coming out. It really feels like it's a monumental for me, part of a milestone in my healing journey. Yeah.
0: So I want to ask one more question today on this first part of our our interview, and you've kind of alluded to it a little bit, but um, talk a little bit about the kindness of strangers. Um, What impact did this have on you and your healing process?
1: Oh, it was um, so profound. And I think it's a silver lining that I've had in this journey is, I mean, I, I remember early on, I was at the local CVS getting my medicine and a woman recognized me because I was in the media a lot. And um, she hands me her card because my name's Kimmy and my husband was killed in the Twin Towers. And I will do whatever you need. I will go get your dry cleaning. If you need me to get dry cleaning, I will help you. And I was stunned. And it was this compassion that I saw from someone who had her own tragedy who probably people helped her right um then I went and got um locks uh rekeyed on the rental house to make it safe for Lauren and I and I was getting ready to pay the locksmith that I had just called in town and he goes you're not going to pay me anything and I said why he goes you've lost too much and so what was so interesting to watch was um people kind of using their natural talent, like the locksmith used his locksmith ability, right. Um, Or like masseuse emailed some of the mudslide survivors and said, I will do free um, massages for you to help you during this time. He was using his talent for good, his, you know, to help. And that was really profoundly touching. And then when the sacred search team formed and these people, I, didn't really know beforehand, spent three years with me. And I remember one of the biggest gifts that I witnessed and I will remember that I hope I can apply um, to others is um, it was during the search and we we're probably two and a half years in and there weren't as many obvious debris piles, right? So, cause we kept clearing them out, marking it off, you know, where do we go next? And we came off a day, we couldn't see many more obvious debris piles in this area. We were looking and I went home early to go get Lauren from school and I was kind of dejected and Anne or Sherry, one of them said it to one another. They said, when do you think we're going to know we're done here? Because I think they were looking around going, there's not much else to look at. And I think Sherry said to Anne, when Kim tells us we're done, And that was the most profound gift of grief, compassion that I ever heard of. It wasn't on their timeline. They were making themselves available for my timeline and what my needs were. And uh, if nothing else of this whole tragedy, it's that's what I want to remember. I want to be there for people as long as they need it, not as Cause cause some people will lean in to your grief and some people that you know, and good friends will lean out cause they can't get it. It's too fatiguing. They're uncomfortable. Right. And that, I think the the compassion and the bucket brigade who, who helped, I mean, it was, it was a stunning, stunning example of human nature at its best.
0: Well, that seems like a great time to, uh, A great way to end today. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for joining us today. And I really look forward to um, part two of our interview. Me too. Thanks a ton. Thank you. As a listener, it is so hard not to be overwhelmed by the amount of devastation and pain that Kim has experienced. Not only was Kim physically injured and traumatized in the mudslides, but her husband was killed and her son also perished and his remains were missing for approximately three years. As a listener, it was so hard not to be overwhelmed by the amount of devastation and pain that Kim has experienced. Not only was Kim physically injured and traumatized in the mudslides, but her husband was killed and her son also perished and his remains were missing for approximately three years. As a mother, she was focused on the healing and well being of her daughter who was buried during the mudslides. In addition to the overwhelming and trauma and grief she experienced, The non-death losses were also immense. Kim lost all of her family's belongings in the mudslides. The photos, the clothing, and the other keepsakes, which are so important in providing safety, comfort, and connection in grief and stabilization to heal from trauma, were also gone, forcing Kim to start completely over. There were several themes that stood out for me during the time I was able to spend with Kim. First, I was amazed at her ability to just trust the process. Now, in many ways, she did not have a choice. In the beginning, she was so injured, she was unable to roll over in bed, and she was in a separate hospital from her daughter. So she had to learn right away that she was not going to be able to do this on her own but she let people in and she just started to trust the process and to accept help every step of the way. And this is something that so many people who struggle with grief have a very difficult time doing. We have a hard time letting people help us when we are hurting the most. Second, Kim gave herself endlessly throughout the entire time that she was grieving and continues to grieve. Yet she could not do it all. It was simply impossible for her to devote all of her time to search for her son. She could not focus 100% of her time on the needs of her daughter. She could not spend every moment grieving for her husband and she could not focus completely on her own needs. There were just too many needs and too many demands being placed on her. And she did the best that she could. And I'm willing to bet there were many days it just didn't feel good enough. There are so many times in grief I see people judge themselves for not doing enough. It just doesn't feel like it's enough. And so I invite you to remember, there are so many competing demands that exist in traumatic grief. And be kind to yourself and acknowledge that you're doing the best you can under extremely difficult circumstances. I also was amazed that Kim found people to be the best connection, the most powerful antidote to living with uncertainty in traumatic loss. Now, people and connections are the key to healing when it comes to grief, because grief makes us feel so alone and so isolated. I love how she ended our discussion with talking about the kindness of strangers and how people just showed up for her during her grief and trauma with acts of kindness. I hear this so often about how individuals in um, my client's life will just show up, people from their past, people that they didn't even think about, will just show up out of nowhere and do very kind things. And I know often there's a lot of disappointment that occurs about friends or family members who aren't there for you. But focus on the people who are there for you, those who are there and provide that connection for you, the random acts of kindness, those who you are able to connect with, those that you are able to trust. And Kim talked about how that was such the huge, or I want to say hugest, Kim talked about how that was such key to her healing. Now, if you want an opportunity to connect with Kim, please join our Facebook group talking about the podcast Untethered with Dr. Levin. Kim's biography is posted along with her contact information if you'd like to connect with her. Our next podcast is going to be on April 26th, and Kim will return for the second part of our interview. In part two, Kim shares where she is in her grief five years after the mudslides And we explore concepts such as hope, finding happiness, and how she plans to honor her husband and her son who died in the mudslides. Thank you so much for joining today's episode of Untethered, Healing the Pain After a Sudden Death. For help with sudden death and unexpected loss, please sign up for my free mini course where I teach you about the three truths about living with a sudden and unexpected loss. Please visit www.fromgrieftogrowth.com to sign up. Bye for now. Thank you for listening today. Be sure to subscribe to my podcast so you never miss an episode. For help with a sudden and unexpected loss, sign up for my free mini course where I will teach you the three truths about living with a sudden and unexpected loss. Please visit www from grieftogrowth.com to sign up.